Rangers play tonight. One o'clock Eastern here. <laughs> and Nathan Gayadami, soon to be joined by the great Carter Braxton Worth. Market call. We're going to get right into it, Dan, and check out this rundown we brought to you good peeps today. Slide it, Earl. Dan's got an S&P options trade. I think you're going to dig this. Banks having a day. Charts um, are interesting here. And of course, what's breaking out other than my face, some stocks out there. Dan, how are you? I'm doing, you know, it's one of those weird days in the stock market, guy. I think it's one of those ones that you say to me every once in a while, what do we, what do you call it when you bookmark something? Or, yeah, I, I, I think they call it your bookmark it. Yeah, your bookmark it. So we woke up today, okay? The futures were up, yields were down. Um, you know, European stocks were up. I mean, everything in the world seems kind of great here a little bit. The NASDAQ 100 was up nearly 1%, okay? And all of a sudden, though, something started to happen under the surface a little bit. I think Microsoft is down nearly 1%. Apple, which was up nearly, I don't know, half of the, you know, percent or so, mm -hmm. is down. Google, Amazon, Meta, all down. Now, that being said, we do have bank stocks raging. You're seeing some other stuff. You know, we're going to talk about some of these single moves that, um, I think are catching our eye a little bit, but you're seeing rotation. And I think it's That's interesting. Right. It goes back to what you and I were talking about yesterday, 24 hours ago, about the idea of leadership and what takes us to, you know, either breaking us out of the uh, NASDAQ 100 or the S&P back towards new highs or leads to the downside. And I think it's kind of interesting. So again, let's bookmark today. How do you feel about that? I'm fine with that because I do think it's an interesting day. And we're going to obviously talk about a lot of different things, yields, banks, but there are a lot of moving parts today. And quickly, before we sort of get into it in earnest, last night when I heard what J-Bill had to say, and you'd be like, well, who cares yeah. what J-Bill had to say? But you know, J-Bill is a pretty important supplier to Apple. And you hear some of the commentary there. And again, I was convinced that, okay, given what they said, it's going to drag Apple down. It might drag some of these semis along with it. The S&P is going to be lower. And of course, that did not come to fruition. So it really is at times really flabbergasting how resilient this market is, but we'll get into it, Dan. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, listen, your point is a good one. I mean, Apple is a 17% customer of J bill, you know, Amazon is 11% customer. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, maybe it's, you know, it's month end here in November. Um, a lot of folks are really eyeing, you know, kind of, um, you know, a, a potential of a broadening out. Like if we start seeing a dash for trash into December, right. Looking for some beta, that sort of thing. And, 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 you know, who knows? You try to mark them up a little bit. But that, to me, is kind of interesting. It also speaks to, if you just look at the way the stock moved three months ago after it reported yeah, to, the upside. Up to a new 52-week high, and it kept on going. And, right. you know, this, to me, guys, speaks to, you know, the fact that I think a lot of these companies have very poor visibility. All that being said, you can use that 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 moving average as, um, you know, it looks support. like it's basically at support. Let's see how it acts down there. So um, that's a great point. All right, let's let's talk about, you know, um, we're getting lots of strategists coming out with their 2024 targets and all that sort of thing. But it's also interesting to hear some of the kind of, um, I don't know, just like some of the you know, the, the vibes, I guess you would say that, that are underpinning some of those targets. You know, we had a strategist from Wells Fargo the other day, the S and P was 45 50 and he, his year end target was 4625 and not mm -hmm. particularly bullish. Didn't have a whole heck of a lot of good things to say. The folks over there, JP Morgan, the strategist, there, guy, look at this tweet from Carl Quintanilla, um, you know, talking about the environment that they see going forward. It really feels like, again, 
poor visibility, um, a lot of things that uh, I guess the Fed had been hoping for are cooling down the economy. Like your your point has always been careful what you wish for, guy. Well, I mean, it's interesting. This is obviously Marco Kalanovic and his team. But, you know, what they say in that little tweet by Carl basically summarizes a lot of things we've been saying for a while. Now, full disclosure, everything that I'm reading here, I thought would happen much sooner. And I think yeah. that's one of the many mistakes that I've made this year. But again, what I've also been saying is it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And there seemingly is an inevitability to all this stuff. So Mark, listen, everybody that's very thoughtful, all these strategists, all these analysts, I mean, they put many, many hours into the work that they do. And they all come up with sort of different numbers and different theses behind the numbers. And we'll see, by the way, we're going to have um, Mike Wilson on our podcast this week that'll drop yeah. on Friday. So it's be interesting to see where he stands as we get close to year end. But from what I can tell right now, the ranges that I've seen on the low end are somewhere between 3,900 and 4,000. And on the higher end, we've seen people tad north of 5,000. And that's a pretty wide range yeah. if you think about it in terms of percentages. And it just, it just goes it's, again to talk about it's, it, it basically reinstates that everything we've said for a while. The, a lot of people are very confused by the action this year. All right. Well, listen, I mean, I'll just say this. The most important thing I see uh, on this has not to do with that 4,200 price target. It has more to do with the fact that they're estimating 2 to 3% EPS yeah. growth for the S&P 500, where consensus is at 11%. And so that, to me, is the thing to key on. And then this kind of leads me to this headline, I guess, Bill Ackman of Pershing Square um, in an interview uh, yesterday. This is out of Bloomberg here. Bets that Fed will cut interest rates as soon as first quarter. Okay, listen, dude. All right. This guy had a great call, 10-year yield to 5%, right? And, and he literally rang the bell very near the top guy, right? Yeah. I think it was no, like- at the top. top. Yeah. At the top. And so I, I think this quote is really important. What's happening uh, is the real rate of interest, which is uh, impacts the economy, keeps increasing as inflation declines. Ackman said in an upcoming episode of the David Rubenstein show, I think there's a real risk of a hard landing if the Fed does not start cutting rates pretty soon. Listen, you talk to me, guy, on this one. All right. The only way the Fed starts cutting interest rates in Q1 is if the economy falls mm -hmm. off a cliff or something really bad happens. We've been talking about this. And again, this is this is a play on rates that Ackman's making. It's not a play on stocks, okay? But if he's right on rates, and if the Fed has to cut in Q1, this is not going to be good for stocks. Well, that's what we've said for a while. And as much as I'd like to think there's some altruistic um, thought process behind these things, I mean, much of what he does, Bill Ackman, is extraordinarily self-serving. And I just want to say, as in keeps increasing as inflation declines, I want to be crystal clear Inflation is not declining. Inflation is going up slower, but it's not, you know, and that you'd be like, oh, you're just mincing yeah. words or you're being nuanced. I'm not being nuanced. I mean, that's exactly what's happening here. So the rate of growth is slowing, but inflation is still increasing. Very important. And maybe to a certain point, he's talking his book. Who knows? But your point is well taken. You know, the Fed is cutting rates early next year. It's not because everything is coming up roses. It's probably because something broke. And over the last couple of weeks, I've heard more and more people talk about that exact point. 
All right, let's bring him in, Carter Braxtonworth of Worth Charting. Let's get Carter's take on everything that we just discussed here. Carter, in, in your view, and we're going to hit your yield um, call, and you've had a really good call, and I think it coincided with the top um, in the 10-year yield um, in and around that period in which we just talked about Ackman taking off his bullish uh, yield play. Um, but first things first, I mean, just, just in general, what is your take if the Fed were to start cutting rates in Q1? What sort of environment, economic environment, do you think would be the backdrop for that activity. I mean, that's just it. It, it, It's this, look, there are relationships that are inverse and there are relationships that are direct, right? And there is this concept that some relationships are always inverse, which is to say, if rates are down, uh, gold is up, or if rates are down, PEs expand. And generally speaking, a lot of these inverse relationships are intact until they're not. And what we know is this ricochet, um, one month exactly, the low for the equity market, um, October 27th, from which this ricochet began, we're now one month later, uh, coincides with a pretty big move down in the dollar in oil and rates. Uh, but if we're to the point where, whether it's for the reasons that Ackman is citing or others, if we're to the point where the Fed is cutting, while that uh, is generally considered a bullish for equities. It also can be something else, right? That something on Main Street is changing. And that because of that, a cutting of rates, remember the Fed is always behind. I mean, this is just the nature of the, of the beast. They're just men and women who put their shoes and socks on in the morning like everybody else. They have no crystal ball. They had no insight in 08 before uh, the disasters of 09. I uh, remember listening to Paulson. You know, a Goldman Sachs partner. There's no more. There's no sage. They're just, and some are academics. Never had real jobs. Uh, yeah. Nothing to say that they're not good people, but they're human. And so the Fed doesn't have any more answers than anyone else. They just have a very big pocketbook. Either way, um, you know, you can bully the table with a big pocketbook, as we know. Uh, and there are those adages: don't fight the Fed. But if the Fed starts cutting aggressively, I don't suspect it's a good thing for equities. Yeah, Guy, you know, it's interesting. Um, Paul Tudor Jones, I think it was about a month or so ago, um, was interviewed and he said he thinks that the uh, U.S. economy will be in a recession in Q1. So my question to you, Guy, is that the stock market is a discounting mechanism and and really the knee-jerk reaction in the stock market over the last month was a 10, 11% rally in the S&P 500, right, off of a four-month low because basically the Fed paused, got a bit more dovish, right? And then rate increases went out the window if you're just looking at the CME Fed Fund tracker and then cuts started getting pulled forward. At some point, let's just say if the economic data does start to weaken pretty aggressively and there's some other ancillary sort of event that causes you know policymakers to get their antennas up, I mean, might that be the thing that causes stocks to kind of reverse lower here, guy? Without quite, again, I'm not an economist to say it all the time. And, you know, I'm not going to start handicapping recessions or not. But with that said, you know, when you hear Paul Tudor Jones make comments like that, you don't have to agree with them, but you have to listen to them. And you say the stock market's a discounting mechanism. Right now, to me, Dan, it appears as though what it's discounting is every conceivable bit of good news that could possibly happen yeah. over the next six to nine months. And that doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense to me. So we'll see. And that, by the way, is manifesting itself in the VIX as well. And uh, we've talked about maybe the VIX is not the same product that was five, six, seven years ago. I get it. But even with that, you know, a VIX at these depressed levels suggests that everybody seems to think everything's going to be just fine and dandy moving forward. Yeah, no doubt. All right, Carter, um, you had a great note out on worthcharting.com yesterday for clients here. Walk us through the SPX, the S&P 500, what you're seeing. You've been talking about that 
one unfilled gap that got filled here. So we'd love to, you know, to take us through what you're seeing in the SPX. Sure. So these were charts to set out uh, when we got to the point where we filled the sole unfilled down gap um, uh, in the history of the S&P. So this is the chart of the S&P with no annotations or lines or judgments, but let's put some in. And so we know we dropped 27% from our peak. Uh, then we ricochet, of course, uh, next chart, and you'll see we rally 30%. So it's a very symmetrical, but of course, the numbers, when you go down and then back up, you don't recover all of it because that's the math of it. And so here we are up more than we are down, but we're not back to the high. Now, if we put in some other annotations, that's a well-defined trend line. We eked above that today ever so slightly, uh, but we're sort of sitting on that green line. Now, if you were to look at the unfilled gaps, there are seven of them. It was, uh, and, and this is the issue. Now, gap theory is esoteric. Uh, there is uh, some, it's uh, Aristotle's uh, postulate, nature abhors a vacuum. And uh, you can read about gap theory. There's all sorts of work done on it. Um, not all gaps are filled, but these, to my eye, all are very impetuous, most notably the ones coming off of this recent spike from the October low. So if we keep going and we add some more, here's longer term. Again, every one of those solid blue horizontal lines were dotted red horizontal lines. They were unfilled gaps, all have been filled. And when one looks at that, you say, well, then it's a foregone conclusion. These will. Sure, at some point, the question someone could say is, Carter, that might be the case, but maybe we go to 5,000 before they're filled. And, and that's certainly anything's possible. But anyway, this is, uh, I, mean, put, I think we might have one more and I can't remember. This is what we have. These are, these are where we simply to fill those, you're looking at a 12%, 13% drawdown from here, which is nothing, right? I mean, you know, 2% that happens any given day for a stock, a currency commodity, 4%, same thing. Meaning 10, 12% is not that big a deal in the history of markets. It would seem like a big deal at the time, but it, just to put it in perspective, it really is small potatoes. No, it's interesting, Carter. And if you can go back to that original chart with you know the lines suggesting that we've now filled that gap, it was a couple of weeks ago that we had a conversation. We were trying to sort of connect a lot of dots. NVIDIA had yet to report. As a matter of fact, I think when our conversation was going on, NVIDIA was going to report either that night or the mm -hmm. next night or something like that. And I said, Carter, given everything you just told me, what, I, what could possibly happen here is NVIDIA comes out blows the doors off, the stock spikes higher, drags the S&P up with it, takes the that unfilled gap, fills the gap, and then maybe we could start to do some work on the downside. What's, fa again, fascinating is NVIDIA reported, obviously it did not, I mean, the quarter was fine, but in terms of the reaction, it wasn't particularly stellar, yet the market still was able to fill the gap on the upside. And I only mention that because, again, it goes to show you, Dan, just how humbling this entire thing can be. Yeah, and, and again, Guy, you just brought up the VIX, and, and that's kind of leading me at this point in the price action that I saw today in some of the market leaders to take a look at the SPY options and, and just kind of mm -hmm. look and see what's being priced here. And they look really cheap in vol terms, but also in dollar terms. And I'm just going to pull up my charts, Carter. They're not too different than yours. Uh, and, you know, Obviously, yours are far better, but this is just kind of you know what my eye sees. When I look at a one year, I just look at that kind of, you know, that overhead resistance here. Could we get to 4,600, that prior high? Of course we could, right? But the the way the options are priced in the SPY, I feel like even if I were to put a bearish trade on here and play for a 
upfill back to that move from November 13th. And obviously a little bit below, you see that you're rising 150 day moving average, not far um, below that, that last gap. I see pretty decent support down there at 420. And obviously on a longer term basis, if I look at the five-year chart, I see the same downtrend that you do from that July high. I see the uptrend there. Um, you know, I, I think that we could definitely have a retest of that kind of 420, 415 level over the next month or two or so. So here's the trade that I have in the SPY here when the uh, when the ETF was trading um, about 456 and a half or so. I look out to January expiration. I want to buy the 450, 420 put spread, paying about $4 for that, buying one of the January 450 puts at about $5.20, uh, selling to open one of the Jan 420 puts at $1.20. That costs me $4. That is my max risk. I have profits up to 26 bucks between 446. That's my break even level on January expiration and 420. That is a short put strike that I have at the lower end of this put spread here. I have a max gain below 420. I have losses up to $4 between 446 and 450 with a max loss above 450. And here's the deal. I mean, listen, you know, I have a, an ETF trading at 456. Mm -hmm. I have a put spread that's $30 wide that costs less than 1%, right? It breaks even down about 2%. I have a max gain of about 6% if the ETF is down 8% on January 19th expiration. I just really like the risk reward here, risking four to possibly make 26 if the ETF is down 8% on Jan 19th. And as always, when we do long premium directional, whether this is a hedge or whether it is a directional bearish bet, I want to cut this trade. I want to cut my losses if this premium gets to about $2 or so. The likelihood of me making money at that point um, is not particularly great. Um, so that's how I want to manage the trade. That's how I see the risk reward of this trade. And I think it sets up pretty good, especially if you have a portfolio of stocks that track pretty well to the S&P 500 and you're looking to hang on for the next month. Or if you're just bearish and you're seeing some of the things that we do and why I want to kind of bookmark today, guy, I just like the risk reward of this trade idea right here. If you look at it, it makes sense to me in terms of the duration and the fact that you're basically you're getting 20 percent ish of that cost of buying the put back by selling the 420s oh. makes a lot of sense. And again, you know, we've just outlined why technically this sets up that gap now has been filled. So that seeming risk against this trade has been washed away in terms of that gap fill. And as we get into December, I think given what you're getting paid to sell the put, and given that basically the all-in cost and the risk-reward setup, I like this trade a lot. Yeah. And, you know, Carter, one thing I'll just say this is that, you know, um, you know, stocks have clearly benefited from yields coming in from 5% in the 10 year right down to this kind of 4-3 level or whatever. And you see further downside. And we had you on Fast Money last night, the, the whole hour, which was a treat for us. Um, but you were talking about yields. And, you know, it's interesting. At some point when yields start going lower, you know, maybe it's not good for stocks. I, I just want to run the clip from you last night um, on yield so you don't have to do it again. We're going to try to save your voice here a little bit because it was a really it was a really good conversation. It was very succinct. But let's look at some yield charts. Uh, we have three. They're identical. Um, and the first is we know that we have now sold in terms of bonds have rallied. Rates have dropped from five to where we are now at four, three. And I think ultimately going to four and below. 
Yeah. So car, you know, it's interesting. So on a day like today with yields week again, and based on your thesis here, it's interesting that some of those, you know, large mega cap tech stocks that have benefited right from yields coming in are down today. Right. Does that kind of help make your case? And then I'd love to talk about the sector that's actually really benefiting today in the stock market and that's banks. And you've had some things to say on the small cap banks, but also in the regionals and the like, Um, but let's look at some of the larger ones too. Yeah, I put out a note last week, I guess, on the beginning about the KRE small banks to play for a bounce here. But um, yeah, the fact that Microsoft and some of these are struggling, even with the, the rate environment, maybe uh, sort of improving for those who take a long term view that lower rates are good for multiples for high growth companies. Um, remember, they've bounced so much. I mean, Microsoft is such a steep 20, 25 percent move off of its ricochet low of a month ago. Uber. Uh, things like this. And so a great deal has been priced in. I mean, I, I'd have to look and maybe you have it there in front of you, but I'm sure Microsoft's trading at about 35 times now. And not to say that PE is a good timing tool, it's not. Um, but either any way you cut it, that's not a, that's not an inexpensive stock. Um, but either way, yes, I, I happen to like, I like small regional banks, not only absolute, but relative to bigger banks and relative to the IWF, meaning and we'll see it in some charts, the relative performance of the KRE. Oh, here, here good. Uh, look at this. So this is just a ratio chart. It's one thing divided by another, depicting, therefore, the relative performance of the numerator to the denominator. And what we have is KRE's relative performance to IWM. Of course, one is a subset of the other. All KRE uh, constituents, small regional banks, are in the Russell 2000. And basically, relative performance has been up and good since May. We're now December. And so good, in fact, that the 150 moving average is turning and flattening the very definition of a transition from bear to bull, a bearish to bullish reversal buy. Uh, we might have it also. Oh, yeah, sorry, Carter. Continue. Yeah. Um, just to, and then and I'll stop. Look at the next one. I think we have it relative to the BKX. Mm-hmm. So now one is a pure apples to apples. It's a part of the small cap arena small cap banks relative to all small cap, the Russell 2000. This is maybe apples to apples a different way, bank to bank, small to large. This is the relative performance of small banks to the BKX, which of course is dominated by JP Morgan, but not to mention Wells Fargo and Citi and Bank America and so forth. And here too, uh, regionals have been outperforming money centers since May to the extent and such an extent that the 150 moving average is turning and flattening and has all the elements of a bearish to bullish reversal buy. Exactly. And you outlined this, by the way, I mean, you were on this, as you said, a week or so ago, and you've been talking about it. And those charts do look good. I'll throw up if we can in real time, pull up the XLF over the last year or so and and take a look at the levels we're at now. We've had a really strong bounce in the XLF. Again, I don't think it's the best constructed ETF, but you can see where we are. We're right at levels that we saw, Dan, back in late July, early August. This theoretically should provide some resistance. And, you know, as my eye goes back and sees it, you know, there's still now, there's a gap, at least one that's been created on the downside. Not a huge deal, but just something to keep in mind. This, by the way, the move from low to this high has taken place basically since October 27th. So over the course of a month, 
you have seen this move, which is again extraordinary. Well, I, and I guess Carter, you know this this move back in yields. If the big story uh, on a Bank of America was this kind of you know mark to market losses that they had in these held to maturity securities, right? If the yields are coming in, you know that should be something that kind of improves sentiment towards the banks a little bit, and especially if you're uh, you know in Ackman's camp and you think rates are going down a lot, that probably helps them. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing in the XLF, and you know to Guy's point, obviously Berkshire is the largest holding it's kind of a weird thing you also like to look at the bkx right the xlf does have uh, i mean remember if it's not just banks as of course berkshire being the biggest in, in many ways but they're large uh, life insurance companies uh life health companies they're investment banks and brokers which are closer to banks but not banks there are things like american express and capital mm-hmm. one and so it is a it is a it's an aggregation that um uh, is not as in its totality not as levered as uh, simply a KRA or BKX, not as uh, sort of rate sensitive. But I, I think I have an XLF chart here. If I don't, that's fine too. Uh, but what we know is that we're up against a pretty difficult level. Uh, mm-hmm. The rally uh, we've seen it leaves the uh, sector. There we go. I mean, the lines draw themselves. You know, it's to the penny. The arrows depict this. Uh, does that mean it? can't push through? No. Um, but the, the really important thing is look how far off the highs it really is and how much work it would take for this important sector. It's the second largest, right? Healthcare and, and financials trade off at about 11% yeah. plus minus, which is going to be second place. Tech's always first. But um, it would take a lot of heavy lifting for this to make a, a new high, and that's not going to happen anytime soon. Carter, you know, it's interesting. We we brought two charts along here. And one I just wanted to kind of hit you on was this Bank of America, which we just mentioned here. And so it's breaking um, out above today, um, that downtrend. Is, is this significant to you? Again, like, like like divorced of the XLF, this has obviously been like sort of the ugly redheaded stepchild of the money center banks, you know, for the better part of the last 15 years or so. Um, what, what does this thing look like to you just as a one-off? Um, well, it's the same sequencing day to day, week over week, right? The low is the same low as the market is the same low as the and so forth. Not quite. It made a new low in early uh, no, uh, November. But the point is that if you were to overlay that on a one, two week basis, a 60 minute bar chart going back 60 days, for instance, with the KRE or BKX, it's the same exact thing. Yeah. I think it. The first thing we know is important that it's happening, right? That there's strength here that is both uh, more than the market, uh, but it's happening in all areas, you've highlighted a particularly impaired bank. I mean, impaired is not the word. I'm not a regulator. I don't really know what their balance sheet's like, but it's a it's a dud of a bank in many ways, an underperformer. And so that that, that the strength is is that the money is going here as well. It confirms to some extent not whether it's important to Bank America, but that the move is valid for the group. Yeah. Right? It's not everyone is participating. Guy, it's interesting, you know, some would say that the money center banks, ex-JP Morgan, are kind of like, you know, regulated and soon to be further regulated, um, you know, utilities. But let's pull up Morgan Stanley. You and I were talking about this, obviously a very different makeup than some of these money center banks. And this thing has been horrible. I mean, like, 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 like really horrible, you know, and, and you know, to many of its peers and the like. And so when you think of these investment banks and, you, you know, like, what, what, what is your thought, here because it definitely this thing and, and I love to get Carter's take. I mean, that you know, look at that declining moving average, right? Look at mm-hmm. that massive you know overhead resistance from that breakdown level that you know was was massive support for over a year or so. Thoughts on the investment banks uh, guy versus money centers, and from a fundamental standpoint, in your view. 
if we can take a longer term look at Morgan Stanley, real time longer, you'll see it exactly. I mean, this just goes back for the year, but longer term, you'll see. I mean, it's had a difficult run for a long period of time. So, you know, the great thing about Morgan Stanley when everybody loved the stock um, was that they were in three very distinct businesses and they had a basically a lead on just about everybody in terms of their different business and the way they could generate revenues in a, in a basically in a non-binary way, right? Mm-hmm. So if one business was doing poorly, they'd make it up. That obviously, that flipped. But I look at this chart, Dan, and say, you know what? That level, that $70 level, it gets us back to support from, I want to say, the summer of 2022. So you have something to trade against. But to answer your question specifically, has not traded particularly nope. well. And again, I do think, listen, I understand why banks, I get it. You know, rates are lower, people are getting excited. There's clearly rotation going on. I understand. I know Doug Cass, for example, had been buying Bank America at depressed levels, and obviously you've seen a nice bounce. I think when rates were at their zenith, I want to say Bank of America had like a $115 billion hold to maturity, a mark to market loss on their balance sheet. That's obviously come down a bit with rates moving. So nothing's changed other than this yield situation. So I yeah. guess to a certain extent, if yields continue to sort of move lower, you know, banks will maybe not explode to the upside, but maybe we've put a floor in for the foreseeable future. Carter, on this, on this to, MS. About guys, making the point that it's long-term, it's struggling. We might even be able to pull a really long-term chart. And I would point yeah. out that this is below where it was at its dot-com peak. Now, think about incredible. There's, there's a celebrated analyst, I'm Mary Meeker. The others were Henry Blodgett and Quattrone. And this stock is below where it was in the year 2000. Yeah. Now, <laughs> Do you know what that means? That's 23 years of negative returns. Adjusted for inflation, it's lost 50% of its money. I mean, this is not a great operating business. It's great if you can catch it on upswing or downswing, um, but shocking kind of thing. You would never think that the great Morgan Stanley or franchise like this could be trading right now at 80, 79, when in the dot-com peak, it was trading at 91. Yeah. Matter of fact, hey, hey, listen, Mary Meeker, she never put price targets on any of those internet stocks that she was covering. So she never got tagged the way a lot of her um, right. peers mm-hmm. did on the street. So so good on you. Um, and she's become, a, I think, a really prolific uh, venture investor, too, in the technology space. Well, listen, Carter Braxtonworth, we appreciate you participating you in our venture here. Thanks so much for joining us. You guys know where to find them. Uh, worthcharting.com. Guy, what's the tagline you have for? Uh, no, no fancy, no, no fancy emojis, just charts. You know, yeah, nothing you fancy. Yeah, I mean, I could say it. But. There he is. Look at his. Nothing slick, just charts. All right, Carter. Thanks so yeah, much. Man. All right, guy. Before we get out of here, man, um, it's interesting on a day like today. You know, I just gave that that bearish spy trade and, you know, you're bearish on the markets and Carter's bearish on the markets and this and that, whatever. But there's some really bullish activity also going yeah. on um, away from the banks. And, and I just wanted to highlight a few names here. Um, GM today. OK, like I don't know about you, but given everything we knew about the losses in and around the strike and given a push out of some of their EV ambitions and this and that, whatever, you know, this sort of move, you know, off the, off, you know, I mean, this is kind of eye popping. Did you expect this at this update? No. I felt like the sentiment was really bearish into this meeting. And obviously that's probably one of the reasons why you're getting the move that you're getting today. Yeah. Did I expect it? Absolutely not. I mean, again, if we could do, if we could pull up a real time general motors chart yeah. um, and this, you know, you can go back as long as you want, this stock is nowhere. Now it's a bounce today is obviously extraordinary and good for GM. And maybe it sort of was this relief rally, which we've seen, 
in a number of different stocks over a period of time. But yeah, we're nowhere. I mean, you go back and look, Dan, where we are now. Obviously, you see that run to the upside we had, I want to say, in late 2021. But you know, this stock has been sideways now for the better part of a year. And it just, just gets us back to where we were seemingly a month or so ago. So yes, listen, I'm not going to dismiss it. I'm not going to discount it. It's yep. a great bounce. We haven't seen a move of this magnitude in quite some time. But does this mean magically all the ills of General Motors have been cured? I don't think so. Yeah. All right. And just a few more. I, I want to get to Salesforce, which reports after the close today. But look, look at Workday today. OK, so this is, uh, you know, a, a SaaS name here. Huge move breaking out to the upside. New 52 week highs. That's on fundamental news. Another one, CrowdStrike. It's had a huge run into its print. If you had asked us last night on CNBC's Fast Money, you know, how are you feeling about this one into the print here? I'd say, you know, careful. You know, you know what I mean? Like after the, the, the run, what is it discounting like that? Here's another one. Network appliance, not a stock that we've talked about a whole heck of a lot here. Look at that breakout on a massive gap and a massive move on big volume to new 52 week highs. So, you know, listen, um, you know, what, what does this mean? What does it mean that investors are chasing? These are not like huge shorted names or this, you know what I mean? It's not like one of those, like these are not really controversial stocks or anything like that. People are piling into things that they think have a bit of runway. And I, you know, because I don't see it guy, you know, does that make me look like a fool? I, maybe, I don't know. But I also know that sentiment has the, the, the ability to change very quickly too. You were saying something earlier today. I mean, when you see moves like this in a number of different stocks, individual names, I mean, that has yeah. all the earmarks of what we used to call blow off top. And, yeah. you know, you just mentioned three. There are a few others out there as well. But, you know, we mentioned J-Bill too. I mean, again, J-Bill is an important company. It's equally as important. Again, they are speaking to, I think, something more potentially consumer focused, you know, demand related type of stuff. Yeah. For You mentioned an Amazon and an Apple. So, it is confounding without question. You know, you say people, I understand that. I'm not convinced that people have anything to do with it anymore. It just feels as though these are all just machine generated, you know, taking headlines and then spitting out buy orders on the back of these systems that have been set up. And Doug Cass talks about this as well. It's all about market structure right now. And if that's the market structure we want, you know, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. All right. And about a month ago, guys, salesforce.com was trading at lows. It had not traded at since mm -hmm. I want to say early May or so. The stock has rallied 20%. Um, in the last you know month or so, that's doubled the performance of the S and P 500. We just showed Workday. That's a stock that a lot of people would say is right in the, a very similar sort of vertical um, as Salesforce trades at a premium multiple to you know the, the broad market, but obviously you know expected growth in mid to high teens, um, both earnings and sales. And you know these guys you know are working on large language models and integrating AI into all their CRM products and yada yada. yada you know you know all the stuff and Mark Benioff and you know. Like, you know, he's going to be on Mad Money, I'm sure, tonight and telling, you know, a, a good a good story here. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not fading this. <laughs> you know, you're going to get in front of this no, after you see no. those sorts of breakouts like we just kind of showed you in CrowdStrike and Workday and NetApp and stuff like that. No way. Because you can see us coming back tomorrow and saying, yeah, we traded up to basically the highs we saw this summer, a little bit north of 240. Yeah. Would that surprise you at all? Not at all. And in terms of you know, creating another gap to the upside after the market closes, then gapping higher. We've seen it many, many times over the last year, and you're probably going to see it again. So to to sort of reinforce your statement, are you going to fade it here? No, there will become an opportunity to do so. 
but it's not into earnings today, I don't think. Yeah, and Carter just said something before we get out of here. I think it's really important. You know, he's talking about Morgan Stanley, and he said, well, it's not a great operating business. Look where it's traded over the last 20 or whatever years and this and whatever. I mean, listen, you know, the market's giving you opportunities, um, you know, to, to kind of buy names like this. You know, mm-hmm. like that sell-off from its July highs was somewhere in the tune of 20%. Now it's up 20%. So, you know, do you wait and, and see what they report and what kind of guidance they have, what sort of visibility, that sort of thing, see what the stock's reaction is. Maybe it gaps up and then, you know, closes on its lows. And that's the way to kind of press a name like that, you know, because at some point, and Carter also said that, you know, valuations and, and, and Liz Ann Saunders from Schwab said that on our pod um, on, on Friday that dropped the On The Tape podcast, um, you know, we know valuation is not a good market timing tool, but sometimes it's a really important input, especially relative to, you know, market sentiment or investor sentiment, that sort of thing. So sometimes, you know, my view has been to wait and see what companies have to say, what the results are and what the market reaction is. And then, you know, how that tracks over a couple of days or so, because it might signal the changing of some sort of, you know, like, like, it might be an inflection point in, in the like here. So, all right, guy, we covered a lot of ground today, huh? We did. We typically do. I think it's important. I mean, we look at all different things. Carter's a great voice. Those charts are great. I love that options trade that you're putting on. I think this is, again, given that we filled that upside gap, it makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, we do cover a lot of ground. And as I started the show with, Rangers play tonight. Yeah, they do. All right, they got a lot of work to do because Monday night they did not show up, Guy Adami. And I know that you were disappointed by that. Um, I was very disappointed by that. That's a typical letdown game. They played the Flyers on Friday. They played the Bruins on Saturday. Sabres come in. Sabres have a lot to prove. Their best guy has been hurt. Their goaltender stood on his head, as they say. Um, Good for them. But that's the National Hockey League. They're no soft nights with that said Detroit's an up-and-coming team a lot of young talent I expect the Rangers to show up especially since Adam Fox is going to be back in the lineup after a month absence due to a bit of a knee injury so that's going to give them some juice I believe Yep. All right. Well, listen, thanks everyone for being here. Thanks to our sponsor fact set. Um, we will be back tomorrow. This is one of your most favorite days of the market call. Mm-hmm. week. That would be mm-hmm. Thursday. We're going to be joined by EY from SoFi. That would be Liz Young. So check us tomorrow. Um, and listen, people love to hear your feedback. Um, you know, we're going to be doing a lot more trade oriented stuff. You see on Tuesdays when we're, it's a CME day um, guy, you're, you're, you're uh, the oil futures trade that we co- collaborated on is working in the right direction here. So we're going to um, be updating a lot of these trade ideas. So follow us on the Instagram guy and I both have accounts on Instagram. We also have a risk reversal media Instagram account. Guy is Guy Dami. I am Dan S. Nathan. Uh, and obviously there's our boy Zuck just kind of as a placeholder for the risk reversal media um, account. You can also follow us on YouTube because we're going to put some of the updates on there too. And all the socials, you know, the whole jam guy. Love it. And let's find a better placeholder, but till then <laughs> we will see you tomorrow folks. Thanks oh. a lot. 